emphasize that it's, it's the next chapter because we never get to the next chapter. We spend all of our time really focusing in on the Word of God. I really do appreciate a good introduction like that. Years ago, I was a professor of uh, preaching at Baptist Bible Seminary, and I'd often be called upon to go out and speak in different settings. And whenever I was going to speak, that meant the pastor usually wasn't there, so I'd be introduced by a deacon. And so the deacons had a hard time understanding what homiletics was, because I was the professor of homiletics, as well as teaching theology and other things. So I, at one church I went to, I told the deacon what I did, and he introduced me that day as the professor of home economics. <laughs> and so I thought I learned my lesson, you know. So the next time I was introduced to speak, I, I said to the deacon who was introducing me, no, look, it's homiletics, it's expository preaching. He says, oh yeah, I get it, I get it, expository So he gets up there and he says, I want to introduce to you the professor of suppository preaching. <laughs> now, if expository preaching gets the word into you, I'll leave it to your imagination what suppository preaching does. And hopefully tonight, uh, it won't be the kind of message that I'm bringing to you that uh, is like what I heard after one service. Uh, I was a young man at the time, and a lady came up to me after the service and said to me, young man, that sermon of yours was like the peace and mercy of God. And being seminary trained, I said to her, well, thank you, ma'am. What about my sermon was like the peace and mercy of God to you? She said, well, it was like the peace of God in that it passed all understanding. And it was like the mercy of God in that I thought it would endure forever. So hopefully you won't find that. But I want to take you to a singular event in the life of Jesus. There is a trigger event in the life of Jesus, uh, one of the miracles that Jesus performed is walking on the water, as we just read, and then Peter walking on the water as well. But if you look at the context and what triggers that event, we want to deal with the fears of people in this verse and explain what happens when fear collides with our faith. For those of us who don't walk on water, <laughs> as Jesus did, there are some things that we can learn here as disciples of Jesus Situations where our fears test the limits of our faith are perhaps more common than we would like to think. Uh, we run into them all the time. And I'm not talking about the things that make us want to give up our faith. We're all following after Jesus, trying to walk in God's will, while we try to figure out what God's will is, right? What God's will is at any given moment. Sometimes we wish he would just drop down a paper from heaven, right? with all of the instructions for the day on it. But you know what we'd do with that paper? We'd take that and say, hmm, witness to my neighbor. No, not that. Oh, I didn't think you'd want me to do that, Lord. No, you must not have meant that. We'd start editing it. But as we follow after God's will, we run into situations. We believe the Spirit is sovereign, not only over our gifts, but over whomever he is quickening to respond to the gospel. In fact, we teach and we preach at this church that the Spirit is central to our salvation. However, with all that said, we often fear to share our faith. We deal with that kind of fear. We deal with the kind of fear that we find when our job changes, when we lose something, when we lose someone. These are hard things. He, Paul instructs us to be anxious for nothing, but we typically worry about nearly everything as we wait on God. Fear and worry are part of being human, aren't they? They're part of what we deal with. In fact, you may have some fears facing you tomorrow. And that's good because Jesus has something to say to you in this passage tonight. In almost every area of life, 
Things are tested before they can be of any benefit. Medicine is tested before it's made available to the public. Airplanes are tested for safety before taking on passengers. Faith, too, must be tested. And sometimes the test that Jesus brings to us, he brings to us in the midst of our fears, the situations where we're not in our comfort zone, where we're not not walking out of God's will. We may even be walking in God's will and be fully convinced of it. Sometimes we do walk outside of God's will and we get into fearful situations. But what about those times like the times we're reading about in this passage? Who sent the disciples into the boat? Jesus. Who knew where they were and how to get to them on the middle of the Sea of Galilee? Jesus. Do you think Jesus knew where they were? Do you think Jesus knew what they were doing? See, sometimes in life it's not about the sins we're committing. It's about the fears that we encounter as we're trying to walk with God. And that's what this passage is stressing. How should we prepare for those moments in our life where our fears test our faith? Now, as for an answer, if you don't have your Bible open, turn it open to Matthew chapter 14, or your digital device, or however you do it. I used to love the sound of rustling pages and people trying to find it. Now, just digitally, it pops up. But there is much for disciples to consider in this account that answers this question, how we should prepare for those moments in life where our fears test our faith. We'll begin by observing what Matthew draws our focus upon. As you read Matthew 14, verses 22 and following, it's on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. So everybody's just had a big meal, right? Everybody was satisfied. Twelve baskets gathered before. And Jesus sends the disciples off in the boat. But notice what he emphasizes here. Matthew went to great effort to emphasize that Jesus was making himself scarce. In fact, you know, after John the Baptist died, go back in the text to verse 13. After the head is brought to the woman who asked for it, right? Uh, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat. Jesus has been trying to get away for a long time. But what happens? The people find him there, and then he has the feeding of the 5,000. Now look what happens in Matthew 14, 22. Right after the feeding of the 5,000, it says, Straight away, he made the disciples get into the boat and go. In other words, he's saying, you go, I'll stay. Before him to the other side. In other words, he's sending them away. Why is he sending them away? Well, he's been trying to get away since he heard that John the Baptist died. More than that, while he dismissed the crowds... He, was, he told them to get in the boat, I'll take care of the crowds, I'll send the crowd off, I'll make sure. And then he dismisses the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself <laughs> to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. I think Matthew wants us to get the idea that Jesus wanted to be alone. He's been telling us about it since John the Baptist died. And he's stressing the fact that Jesus, at this pivotal moment in his ministry, John has decreased, Jesus must increase, right? At this pivotal moment in his ministry, he wants to be alone. Jesus' constructive use of solitude with God in prayer helped him prepare himself and others for whatever was next. Why does Jesus go up on the mountain to pray? I think he knows what he's going to be doing to the disciples. <laughs> I think he knows what's coming for him. 
And in both cases, he's trying to prepare them. Jesus found being in the Father's presence as both necessary and sufficient to prepare him for his daily direction and for fruitful ministry. Now let me ask you a question about you and your fears that you're facing on Monday. Or maybe the fears you're facing when you go home tonight. Do you need to be in God's presence to face them and deal with them? Jesus did. Jesus certainly sought it. If John 6 is referring to the same event, Jesus was also acting in response to the people trying to make him king by force of their will. And he also withdraws for that reason. In John 6, 14 to 17, we read, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were going about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew. Boy, it would have been a lot easier for Jesus to say, Yeah, I'm king. But Jesus withdraws. Maybe John's telling the same story. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea. So if John is describing the same event, maybe that's the background to this as well. Again, Jesus found being in the Father's presence as both necessary and sufficient to prepare him for his daily direction and for fruitful ministry. As Jesus tried to carry out ministry, he knew that he had to be in the presence of his Father. As we live, trying to find God's will, there's a place we need to start. <laughs> and it's the same place Jesus did, in the presence of God. We need time alone with him, time where we are withdrawn from others, time to focus and hear his voice. You know, in recent days, I've been serving as the interim provost at Moody. It was just kind of dumped upon me. I've been doing that for the last eight months. And I'm really trying to listen to what God is trying to say to me in this time. But you know what happens? The phone calls, the meetings, the busy times. Everything comes into my life to crowd God out and what he might be trying to say to us at Moody. But I believe God has us at the Moody Bible Institute where he wants us. In a crisis. I'm going to identify with these guys in the boat in a minute. Because I really feel that God puts us where he wants us in these situations. And then it's important how prepared we are by means of our walk with God, our relationship with God in the first place. Jesus sought and provided for personal alone time for fellowship with God. Not just coming to church, not just being in the presence of other Christians, though I have to admit I've had some of the most encouraging times over the past eight months in that role by being in the presence of fellow believers who encourage me in my faith, who say to me, I'm praying for you. Very encouraging. But Linda and I were talking on the way in this morning and said, I really need to hear a word from God. We need to get alone. We need to pray. We need to ask God for that. More than that, disciples who purpose to meet with God will find that he also meets them with sufficient grace and mercy for our frenetic daily journeys. I have so much to do today, Martin Luther said, I must spend more time in prayer. You want to accomplish anything? Up on the wall in my office, I have a saying from the author of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. 
until you're alone with God, you're really not prepared to face your fears, to face the things that are ahead. Meanwhile, the disciples who are following God's will, right? Jesus put them in the boat. They were not having an easy time of thing by any measure. Look at your text. Um, But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. This is not the incident back in Matthew chapter 8, where there's a storm. But here you have experienced fishermen in a boat trying to row across a five-mile stretch of lake. And they can't get anywhere. But they're far from land, and they're straining against the oars. It's a hard time. At times, following Jesus' leading places his disciples into confusing, difficult, and even dangerous situations, doesn't it? Jesus didn't promise us an easy time if we would follow him, did he? There was no guarantee that everything would go smoothly once we started to walk with him. Compare Matthew 8. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed. This is the earlier account. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waters. Where was Jesus? He was there that time, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But this time, in this instance, in Matthew 14, he sends them on into the sea ahead of them, ahead of him, right? And he's not there. <laughs> and they're straining to make any progress. They're in that difficult situation. So what was following Jesus' will like in this instance, in Matthew 14, 24? The boat was a long way from the land. 3 to 6 a.m. is the time. By this time, we know that from verse 25. It says, in the fourth watch of the night, between 3 to 6 a.m., it was a long way from the land. The actual phrasing in the text is many stadia. The Sea of Galilee is only five miles at its furthest point from shore to shore. Beaten by the waves. The word there, beaten, is a word that Jesus uses to describe the tortures of hell. Basanos. It's a very strong term. The waves were strongly against the disciples. For the wind was against them. A very intensive use of anti, which is a word for against. We use it in antichrist, but it's it's an intensive form. In a word, what was following Jesus' will like in this instance? Tortuous. You ever been there? You ever had to follow Jesus' will and you knew what Jesus' will was, but it put you in a situation where you had to say some very hard things to a friend or a relative. Following Jesus' will, you knew you had to say them, you knew they had to be done, or you had to take a stand, maybe against your entire family, for the sake of Jesus, because you knew you were doing what was right. I have to tell you how I felt at those moments as our family went through some of those things, where we were abandoned for two years by people very close to us, tortured. It was always on my mind. A lot of fears. What if we're never reconciled? And it was at those moments, just as here, 
that Jesus came to us. But it was only out of the strength of a relationship of having spent time with him in the first place. Now, Jesus' disciples had the small luxury. I mean, I, I guess it's okay now to use uh, finger quotes, air quotes, right? They had the small luxury of a direct instruction from him, right? But you and I, we have the Bible, but we don't have Jesus whispering in our ear, and we wish we did most days. We wish Jesus would tell us what to do in some of these fearful, difficult situations in which we find himself. Something we, that's something we lack in our pilgrimage. But even if we have such instructions, it doesn't mean that Jesus is sending us into something that's easy to do or isn't perilous. Upon later reflection, the disciples may have realized that Jesus put them in this situation on purpose to test their faith. And that seems to be what Matthew is emphasizing for the disciples who are reading his gospel. He's saying to them, you know, sometimes walking with Jesus is not going to be rosy. Jesus is going to send you into situations where your, his will is clear, but it's difficult. And following Jesus becomes very difficult. He wanted to test their faith against their fears. And he really does. In fact, that's what Matthew will emphasize. They did what Jesus told them, yet they ended up in difficulty on what should have been a typical journey. I mean, people are crisscrossing against the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, some of them are fishermen. They know this route. They know how to go across the Sea of Galilee. They've been in rough waters on the Sea of Galilee before. So it's evening. They get into the boat. They've had their dinner. And at 3 a.m., they still haven't made it the five miles across. Think about that. How many hours of struggle are they in on the sea? Interesting. They were making tortuous progress in getting to the other side. Their leader sent them ahead with no specific recorded instruction. He just says, go. They seem a lot like you and me, don't they? <laughs> I don't mean to allegorize, but uh, we too are many miles from our destinations, right? Uh, collectively, making tortuous progress toward goals we are unsure of. I mean, do you know everything that God wants you to do for the next week? No, but I want to follow Jesus. <laughs> okay, but what if Jesus says this? Okay, I'll think about that. Uh, and the elements that surround us, the things in our life that are distractions or things that injure our walk with Jesus, it may be TV, too much TV, binge watching that series, whatever it is, they aren't helping the situation. And then there are even the things that are against us, like the things that were against the disciples. Disciples who follow Jesus' instructions may find themselves in very difficult situations. Matthew portrays the disciples as obedient and following Jesus' direct command. We stress that. Disciples may be assured that God always has his purposes in mind in giving us his instructions. If God says it, and you ought to, you ought to obey it because it is good for you, God always has our highest good in mind. And we need not interpret everything that we go through as a result of our sin. Not all of our crises arise from our disobedience. But again, 
all crises we face have his purposes in mind. The same Jesus who sends us off to follow his will into difficult places also comes to us in our crises, offering his presence in answer to our fears. That's what Matthew teaches us. If you're straining at the oars and it's 3 a.m. and you wonder, am I doing God's will? Matthew wants you to know that Jesus never left you. He comes to you in your crisis. And some of you are facing crises that I have no idea what they are. Some of them are so difficult, you're straining at the oars and you wonder if you can make another stroke. Jesus comes to them. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, where has he been? Praying up on the mountain? It's not like he can look out at the night sky. There's no lights on the Sea of Galilee like there are today around the Sea of Galilee so you could see what's out on the sea. Jesus knows where they are. My friends, I don't know what struggles you're facing. Jesus knows where you are. And he's willing to come to you. He may not be walking on the sea, but he'll come. Experienced fishermen among them, they spent the entire night rowing. Jesus has spent the same night praying. And then there's the miracle. Now, in the Jewish mindset, the sea was often used as a symbol for that which was ominous, sinister, and threatening. Um, You're familiar with it, what happened to Israel when they left Egypt. What were they confronted with as they came to the Red Sea? It was the obstacle between them and deliverance. What did God do? God appeared, dividing the waters. What does Jesus do? They're in a situation they cannot control in the boat. Jesus comes to them. This is what Matthew is stressing. In Revelation, one sees the beast, for example, emerging from the sea. So this is how people thought of the sea. And the disciples, even though they're experienced fishermen, are wondering whether they might die. Likewise, in ancient Semitic mythology, there is frequent reference to the primordial sea monster that represents the shadowy chaos. Daniel 7 presents the sea as a picture of the source of restless evil, hostile resistance to the creator's orderly reign. Without endorsing these mythological concepts of the the Near Eastern neighbors, Israel's prophets evoked their imagery. You see it frequently in Isaiah 27.1. We won't spend much time on these. In that day, the Lord, with his hand... uh, and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing servant, serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. We already talked about the parting of the waters, and Psalm 74 deals with that as well. Well, what about Jesus walking on water then? What are we to make of this miracle? Why does Matthew even bring it up? Well, there are many inferences that one can draw. Certainly, it shows his divinity. Men do not walk on water. Peter did. But that's the second miracle in the passage, isn't it? (laughs) Certainly it shows his divinity and his ability to rule over the natural elements. 
of his creation. Uh, he upholds all things by the word of his power, according to Colossians 1 and 2. It also makes sense for Jesus to have physically walked on water when one considers what we see throughout the Bible regarding large, uncontrollable bodies of water. If those waters symbolize death, evil, chaos, and all the other things which are not natural to God's original creation, then for Jesus to walk on the stormy waters seems to point to the reality that Jesus conquers death, evil, and brings about the order creation groans for. After all, in the end, you realize, Revelation says it, the sea will give up its dead. Why are there dead in the sea? They die there. People fear the sea. They fear what they cannot control or understand. So when you find yourself fearing, remember, the one who stills the seas and overcomes the chaos is the one who claims you as his own. Jesus comes to his disciples because they are his disciples. Are you Jesus' disciple? He'll come to you. The disciples compounded fears in our fears. Jesus appears in their sight, and Matthew focuses on the disciples' fear. They were terrified. It's from a word meaning to stir up trouble. Uh, it's, a, it's a terror that's like a confusion. It's like a mad rush in a city. It's like walking down to Union Station at the end of the day. <laughs> that kind of mad terror. No, it's worse. It's a terror. They said when they see Jesus, it is a phantom, an apparition, a ghost. They can't believe what they're seeing. They cried out in fear. It's a word from which we get the word phobia. Matthew wants us to understand they were scared out of their wits. And before we get too hard on the disciples, let's admit this was totally unexpected. I mean, here comes something walking on the water to you. On the water. Put yourself in their shoes. Jesus meets us too when our faith falls short due to our fears. Jesus' comfort to the disciples is immediate. He says, take heart, be courageous. It is I, it's ego eimi. It's the same words that he uses in John 8, 58. I am. Take care, I am. <laughs> He's reminding, there is one I am in scripture, right? And that is God. Yeah, yeah. Do not become afraid. It's a command. Again, this was part of Jesus' plan for them from the beginning. He commanded it. He made them get into the boat and head to the other side. He walked directly to them on the water. He addressed their fears openly. But look at Peter. Peter takes the bold step of faith. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, Jesus didn't instruct him to do it until he asked for it, right? When you're asking God for things, be careful. Howard Hendricks used to say that when he was in seminary, there were a number of women who came to him and said, Howard, I just want you to know, because he was single at the time, just want you to know that I've been praying to God that you would marry my daughter. And I just, God just revealed it to me that I really think you would marry my daughter. And at that point, Howard used to stop in class and say, you ever thank God for unanswered prayer? <laughs> it's that kind of idea. So Peter gets out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, 
Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? To what purpose did you doubt, is the idea. Oh, you of little faith is something Matthew likes to say. In Matthew 6.30, as he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us not to worry about what we shall eat or what we shall drink. And he compares us to the grass of the field that God takes care of. Will he not much more clothe you of you with little faith? Or again, in Matthew 8, 25 to 26, Save us, Lord, you are, we are perishing in that account where they're in the storm at sea. Oh, you of little faith, he says. And here, he reaches out to Peter and says, Oh, you of little faith. Later on in Matthew 16, and they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. Twice he provides bread. I think Jesus' focus here is on our faith. But how is it on our faith? That's what we're coming to as we wrap this up. Only Matthew gives this account of Peter. Peter doesn't come across in the best light, but neither is he in the worst light. Some see self aggrandizement where others see humble faith that loses its footing. Matthew isn't really making an apologetic for Peter, but is pointing out that disciples shouldn't doubt that God is able to provide for what he commands. James taught us this, right? Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. How does he put it? For the man who doubts is unstable in all his ways. Here's a visual image of it in Peter. Unstable. But Jesus meets us when our faith falls short. That doesn't mean he won't question us why we doubt that he can actually meet our needs. You know, I've gone through a couple, my wife and I have gone through a couple of uh, home sales where we've lost a lot of money. And when you get to that point as you're getting older in life, you say to yourself, Lord, are you going to take care of us? And you pray. But you have fear, right? Don't you have fear when you're wondering and worrying about such things? The message from this passage is, why are you doubting that I could actually meet your needs? What is it that you're fearing for tomorrow? Why do you doubt that Jesus could handle that with you, for you, through you, around you, and in you? Believers who either test God, like Peter did, if it's you, Lord, command me to come, or exert their faith in following God, should not doubt God's ability to act in accord with his character and his power. Let God be God in your life. If Jesus is your Lord, allow him to provide and care for you. He wants to. That seems to be what Matthew is stressing in this passage. Jesus didn't summon Peter or rebuke him. He did rebuke Peter for his lack of faith. Jesus says, if you're going to ask me, believe. Now, not believe and you'll have it. I'm not talking, I'm trusting Jesus for a Cadillac, or I'm trusting Jesus for a Lamborghini. Uh, it's not that. It is believing that Jesus is caring for you and willing to take care of your needs. Jesus meets believers to supply whatever is lacking in our faith when our faith falls short of what is needed. Their response, you're the son of God. 
The last lesson Matthew would have us learn is the result of crises and difficulties in our lives is in keeping with God's desire for a deeper understanding of the reality of who the Son of God truly is. Jesus and God want you to know who Jesus is. The disciples learned the lesson when Jesus got into the boat. Truly, you are the Son of God. So when your fear overrides your faith, remember that God is working out his purposes in you. And even this instance of crisis that you're experiencing now or you're thinking about that looms on the horizon sometime this week, sometime this month, sometime this year, remember, God is working out his purposes in you. The one who prayed on the mountains while the disciples struggled in the sea knows your situation, and he's watching out for you. Let's pray. Father, our faith is sometimes greatly short of what is needed. We are thankful in those moments that we serve a God who knows our needs and comes to us in ways unexpected, sometimes scary and frightful, like Jesus did to the disciples, but always with the view of meeting the needs of his people. This week, Father, as we face our fears, whatever they are, as disciples of Jesus, let us spend time with you alone, that we might know your purposes and direction for our life. And then, Father, as we face our fears, let us ask you for what we need and believe that you can provide it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.